0: TBA 21 Academy Radio. You are listening to Magical Fresh and Salty Conversations, TBA 21 Academy's podcast series exploring ecological and magical perspectives on bodies of water. This series of conversations reflects on the anthropogenic transformations of marine ecosystems, leaning on the innovative trajectories of science, technology, and art. Through performance, expeditions, sound, film, and image making, the contributing artists engage with the underwater world in encounters with scientists and thinkers, proposing a world reimagined from within the waters whether in the fictional, scientific, or science fictional realm, an interspecies future lies ahead of us. Radio Amnion and the convergence between art and science in the deep ocean. In this episode, we are joined by Joel Toms, a London-based artist and researcher teaching in the MA program Art and Ecology at Goldsmiths, University of London. Tom's is the founder of a multi-year sound project called Radio Amnion, commissioning artists and researchers to stream sonic composition from the depths of the Pacific Ocean, and also joined the STARTS Artists in Residency for their final showcase event at Ocean Space in Venice on the summer solstice in 2021. What happens when science opens up its depths to the transformative potential of art? In a conversation with Elisa Rasconi, an astrophysicist from the Technical University of Munich, and Dwight Owens from Ocean Networks Canada, an initiative of ocean observatories monitoring the Canadian coastline, this episode delves into the deep world of ocean science and compassionate ecological art departing from the smallest, and perhaps most elusive, particles described by physics.
1: It was in a text of artist and scholar, Astrid and that I first felt the severity of the term amniotic, from which the amnion and radioamnion emerges. The now-legendary text, Hydrofeminism, or On Becoming Bodies of Water, in the very first sentence, quite succinctly and accurately states, we are all bodies of water, which perhaps isn't that different from the classic Carl Sagan saying, we are each one of us made of stardust. These realities link us into a radical relationality where the plural pronouns us and we refer to a being beyond the human. We are all bodies of water. We're deep-time conglomerations of recycled minerals, bacteria, viruses, gases, and liquids. The Radio Amnion Project, that approaches the living thought of the oceans that we participate in and as, seeks to amplify the conditions for new thoughts to emerge, for renewed relationships with living, wise beings, and entities that planet Earth harbors, attracts, and generates – Radio Amnion asks us to think and experience beyond the limits of human thought and to address the ocean as a living and knowing communicative entity that is both one and many. In 2019, while working with art and physics students in Munich, after an invitation from Professor Dr. Elisa Risconi of the Technical University, an incredible offer surfaced. ELISA was at the time developing a subaquatic telescope to detect the imperceptible particles called neutrinos. ELISA and her colleagues from the Pacific Ocean Neutrino Experiment, or P1 for short, began collaborating with Ocean Networks Canada, a national oceanographic and marine monitoring consortium based out of the University of Victoria in settler British Columbia, Canada. Ocean Networks Canada operates an 800-kilometer ring of Pacific Ocean monitoring stations with five different nodes called Neptune Observatory. At the Cascadia Basin node of the Neptune Observatory, 300 kilometers from the shores of Vancouver Island and 2.6 kilometers under the surface of the ocean, the P1 telescope is being developed, tested and deployed. Imagine a regular series of kilometer long cables with a regular array of glass spheres holding optical devices. These devices peer into the dark depths of the ocean to record the very rare phenomena of neutrino interactions. Within these two scientific institutions of the Technical University of Munich and Ocean Networks Canada, I was invited to develop an exhibition at the bottom of the ocean. Pondering this opportunity for nearly a year and concerned with my own access and privilege to such remote and accessible sites, I developed Radio Amnion, which opens a gateway for many other artists and voices to enter into those zones where new knowledge of cosmos and nature are being developed and discovered.
2: I'm Elisa Resconi, I'm a professor at the Technical University in Munich. My chair uh, has the title Experimental Physics with Cosmic Particles. And that is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to catch particles that are produced in the cosmos and uh, make physics, uh, learn how they are produced, where are produced, uh, which type of message they bring to us. I got to know Ocean Networks Canada, which is operating the largest oceanographic infrastructure, uh, instrumenting the ocean, uh, including one site that uh, you all already cited, Cascadia Basin. And this uh, place is uh, so deep and so clean and so quiet uh, that I believe could host uh, another neutrino telescope.
3: I am living in the unceded territories of the Esquimalt people, in um, what's also known as uh, Victoria, BC, Canada. And I've been working for Ocean Networks Canada since 2008. One of my jobs has been to pester and bother scientists all around the world who are using our data and our observatories um, to tell us what they've come up with, what they've published, who they're working with.
1: So Elisa, could you, could you tell us a little bit more about neutrinos and, and what you're actually looking for? Why do you need the ocean? Talk a bit to us about the scale of the observation
2: Neutrinos are elementary particles. Their history, I think, tells us uh, a lot already. So they have been postulated uh, by Wolfgang Paul in 1930 to rescue, if you want, the energy and momentum conservation. So back in the days, people discovered radioactivity, the activity. They were studying the product of uh, spontaneous decaying. And one of these decay, the beta decay, uh, was uh, coming out with uh, only two particles. Once you have two particles in a decay, you know very well the energy of both. There's only one solution to the momentum energy conservation. But instead, uh, the, the energy uh, measured from the electron was showing a continuous spectrum, so like multiple solutions. And this was not possible. It's actually a very simple math. Uh, that is uh, applied to every physics phenomenon we know. So energy and momentum are conserved everywhere. There is no phenomena that violates that. And so Volkan Pauli, who was an extremely talented theoretical physicist, he simply concluded that another particle, a third particle had to be there, an invisible particle. And so it was anticipated the presence uh, of this uh, particle that then became the neutrino, a small neutron, in Italian actually, Eno at the end of the word means small, so a small neutron, a neutral particle, an invisible particle, a very mysterious particle, and actually took many, many decades and a lot of experimental effort to be detected. Indeed, Wolfgang Pauli himself said, I did something horrible, I actually postulated the particle that no one will be ever able to see. There is a a very famous letter that he wrote back then, anticipating the complexity of measuring neutrinos. And so neutrinos have been actually detected in several sites, from nuclear power plants, from the sun, from the atmosphere, and now also from the cosmos. But what we know, and we know by now also really well, is that their interaction is extremely rare. So the probability of an interaction of a neutrino is very, very low. So neutrinos produce other particles. And then once the particles propagate in a transparent medium, these particles produce a very dim light, the Cherenkov light. So now if we would instrument a very small volume, we would have to wait millions of years to see a neutrino interaction. So instead, we go for instrumenting huge volumes So the original idea to study neutrinos from the cosmos has been born in the ocean, actually at the coast of Hawaii with the Duman project that was uh, trying to instrument an extremely deep site with an extremely ambitious project uh, at the coast of Hawaii, but seeded, as I said, the field, uh, seeded ice cubes, seeded other experiments and to a certain extent seeded also P1. So you have always to push also your Uh, fantasy uh, and your capability of imagining these phenomena up to the extreme. And that's the reason why we need to go into the ocean, the deep ocean, in the dark ocean, in a very, very quiet uh, zone, uh, trying to hear and see the dim light produced by a very rare neutrino interaction.
1: Neutrinos offer us through a superluminal event that you refer to as Cherenkov radiation, a window into the imperceptible to see past the limit of vision, past the limit of these kind of imposed borders and limits um, and, and, and letting us think new thoughts and perceive things that are remain imperceptible. Can you tell us a bit about what does the ocean offer and why is it necessary to work across cubic kilometers of space?
2: We are in the dark and we instrument eventually a volume, not only a surface, not a dish. So we instrument a three-dimensional volume at the scale of several cubic kilometers. So the telescope is composed by several lines, vertical lines, instrumented with photosensors. Their goal is to catch and register this uh, Cherenkov radiation, eventually produced by the interaction of neutrinos. So it's a very indirect way, if you want. We have to make very uh, many steps, so the sensors on these uh, vertical lines uh, detect the arrival time and the number of uh, photons produced in the Cherenkov radiations. And then, out of this uh, encoding, which is a series of arrival time and number of photons, so arrival time and charge, as we call it, then out of this matrix of of numbers, we infer, uh, eventually, the presence of uh, Cherenkov radiation, which is a very characteristic type of signature. And out of that, we go back in the reconstruction of uh, neutrinos. So that is how eventually we uh, manage to have uh, a feeling or a probability out of a neutrino interaction. So we need uh, this volume, we need kilometer dimension, which uh, comes back to the uh, complexity of imagination that neutrino-neutrino telescope pose. The very first uh, idea of, uh, or very first conversation we had, Joel, about Amnion was also oriented to uh, the capability of imagining just one kilometer tall line. So one kilometer tall thing, it's already difficult to imagine. What is one kilometer?
1: It's so different than terrestrial space, right? So buoyancy is what allows this type of construction on this kind of impossible scale to exist. and the ocean offers so many, you know. Thinking with the ocean offers so many ways of challenging our thought because it offers different modes of gravity and orientation.
2: You are waiting for a phenomena that you can't control. That is a very humble operation. You can't. You can't. You know. We don't. We don't create anything. We do not accelerate a particle like a CERN, or we do not. Uh, manage, we, we do not control when a phenomenon comes, when a neutrino comes, when uh, a neutrino interaction comes. And so the ocean, it's like a little bit uh, embracing this, it's, it's passive, it's there. Uh, we also do not control the ocean. Um, we just immerse something like a wish um, and we wait. And, and the ocean allows us to wait. Uh, as the glacier at the South Pole. It's there. It's a big gift. Uh, We have to respect that. And then you wait. You wait in the silence. Uh, You wait uh, metaphorically in the volume. And you hope that something magical is going to happen and that you will be the one, together with your friends and colleagues, to make sense out of that.
1: So the oceans are this vast, unknown space. And some people have mentioned that we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about um, the bottom of the ocean. And Dwight, you and your colleagues and Vast is our knowing about the ocean. (laughs) And could you tell us a bit, maybe some of the things that are exciting, what types of knowledge we're gaining with ONC, Ocean Networks Canada, instrumentation? You know,
3: one tiny point of of measurement, one tiny point of light. And in the meantime, the ocean is so vast. So we have, um, you know, hundreds of instruments, thousands of sensors at different locations, different environments, and we're measuring all kinds of different things. Um, The temperature... The salinity, the saltiness, the density, the conductivity of water, the currents, so the movements of the water, because, you know, it is the Pacific Ocean. It's peaceful, but it's moving. It's constantly moving. Um, So it's passive, but it's active at the same time. Uh, We have hydrophones that will listen to... The ocean and the hydrophones can hear the waves at the surface of the ocean 2.6 kilometers above. They can, um, the seismometers that we have at the bottom of the ocean can detect the crashing of the waves on the coastline hundreds of kilometers away. They can also detect the calls of blue whales and fin whales, you know, these boreholes that are looking down below the surface and then, or below the seafloor, and then measuring the movement of fluids, um, the the changes in pressure and stress that are building up as these oceanic plates are moving. We have um, a bunch of installations in that rift valley that I mentioned before, where these hydrothermal vents are located and these vents are superheated ocean water that has gone down below the sediment um, and into deeper areas where it's very close to the um, um, to the magma to the uh, volcanic activity it gets superheated and then it also um, picks up all kinds of dissolved minerals vents, so there are these super heated fluids and they pick up the minerals and the temperature of those waters is 300 400 degrees but there are animals that like this this water which is poisonous to us and they colonize these vents Uh, one of the principal animals is the tube worm and these tube worms have no mouth um, but they do have a gut and in their gut, they have bacteria and they have, where their mouth would be, they have a gill and they can take in the this toxic seawater and feed it to their bacterial colonies in their gut. And the bacteria then produce energy for the tube worms to go about their life. And so there are these thriving uh, colonies of tube worms living Living on the hydrothermal vents in the in the in these rift valleys.
1: Yeah, that's incredible. Because I remember there was a time where scientists were like, "Oh, we don't. It's too hot there and toxic. We don't even need to look for life there." And then it's teeming with life. <laughs> it's such an amazing zone of possibility like that area where things are traveling faster than light where you're measuring salinity like in the urgency of climate change and and acidities and temperatures and flows and all these different boundaries and borders and limits um it just becomes this incredible zone of possibility and then being invited by you to also put like other ways of knowing and other ways of thinking and other ways of experiencing and expressing relationships with the world into that place is such a gift. We also had this really incredible conversation about one year ago, Elisa, and you were really excited um, because you were learning so much about the ocean. And it, because nothing has existed in the ocean like what you're building, it has developed in this kind of amazing collaboration between oceanographic sciences and particle physics and physical cosmology. This hybrid chimera between physical cosmology and um, marine studies
2: so, the first phase of P1, which is uh, to a certain extent still happening, has been really to understand the environment. And so we started to measure uh, several parameters, but one uh, phenomenon surprised us. And this is actually a known phenomenon, uh, it's a phenomenon of bioluminescence. Um, surprised us in the sense that we rediscovered something we were expecting to see there, but we got uh, infinitely uh, fascinated by the fact, number one, that life is uh, present also at 2.6 km deep in the ocean. Temperature down there is relatively cold, it's about 2 Celsius. There is no light whatsoever, uh, but it's still full of life. So the bioluminescence is a phenomena that we are aiming also to study more details together with the oceanography uh, community oceanographic community uh, to provide more insights uh, to see if it could be also a tracer for changes in the deep ocean in the system ocean changes that as you said uh, joel human beings are producing Um, but the system is so complicated so complex the earth system is so complex that we can't exactly predict um, what happens in deep ocean. So to be able to monitor over several years or decades deep ocean uh, in the bioluminescence, just to give an example, would be uh, most probably a, a, a huge contribution, or at least the ambitious is to be significant in, in oceanography as well uh, within a neutrino telescope. Um, discovering life down there is also of course a humbling operation so you you don't want to disturb the environment so we are very careful in the choice of material all inert material in the choices of uh, also the design in order to create as little as possible turbulences and stress as little as possible uh, animals Um, and yes that's i think is one of the element that is also driving the design of the P1 neutrino Telescope to be able to provide insights in the bioluminescence.
1: There hasn't been any such structure in the ocean that has that kind of depth. It offers this new window maybe to to understand it um, stratigraphically layered.
2: Yes, so there is a structure in the Mediterranean Sea Uh, Antares and Cubic London Net that is uh, more advanced than us, so they're monitoring the Mediterranean Sea, also in bioluminescence uh, since several years. Now it's interesting to compare the Pacific Ocean together with the Mediterranean Sea.
1: So, Dwight, Um, You have a lot of experience working with artists and scientists together at Ocean Networks Canada, and on this topic of different modes of understanding and addressing the oceans, we recently collaborated together with a group of artists and scientists from Ocean Networks Canada on this article that we published in the summer uh, in Frontiers in Marine Science called doubling down on wicked problems, ocean art, science collaborations for a sustainable future, which is open access and freely available. And I'm just wondering if you'd like to comment on that relationship, um, because in your position, you have so much experience with artists and scientists working together.
3: Our paper, we talked about three different modes or dimensions of art, science, Collaboration. One of them we call SciCom, which is where scientists may approach artists to help them to illustrate their science, uh, to make their science more communicable. Another mode we were talking about, SciArt, which is where artists may approach scientists and Want to make use of scientific data, scientific technologies, or methodologies, or frameworks, or facilities to create uh, new modes of expression, new modes of art. Then we talked about art science, which is a transdisciplinary approach where the artists and the scientists are working together, much as we are today. The art science space is a place where both of these mysteries are something to swim in and something to explore freely and come up with new ways of, of understanding and, and expressing and interacting that we, we hadn't thought of before. I think it's probably nothing new. Um, you know, when you talk with Indigenous people, they would say, uh, we've been doing that for thousands of years. Art and science are the same for us. So, you know, maybe we're going back to the, to the old ways when we mix um, art and science together. But there's a lot of opportunity here, a lot of possibility, and it's so exciting to be working with with artists and scientists and and creating venues where we can explore together.
1: Radio amnion operates in these multiple fields and in various dimensions of the real where uh, different types of knowledge cohabit and co-create and where the imperceptible and intangible resound with the facts of numbers and statistics. Some of us know and understand the ocean as a living and thinking entity and others still know it through mathematics and measurements. Uh, These ways of knowing do not need to conflict with one another. So this is perhaps where the urgency of the project lies, building spaces where different ways of knowing can fortify one another rather than compete or denigrate the other. And this is our gesture of a possible way forward, reconnecting multiple knowledges of the world, the really different, very different ways of knowing and merging them together again. There, under the ocean, 2.3 kilometers deep during each full moon, the sounds and voices of artists and poets, dreamers and believers co-mingle in the spaces of measurement where signals from the deepest parts of the cosmos arrive superluminally, where the weight of ocean warming and acidity is extremely tangible, where new knowledge of the cosmos and nature are being articulated in that new nature, radioamnion, sonic transmissions of care in oceanic space whispers into the hydrological cycles of Earth and reaches out to the moon and other celestial bodies through the windows opened when faster than light particles modify space and time, but also deeply into and for the Earth Radio Amnion, with all of its incredible contributions from so many artists involved, I would like to say thank you. And thank you, both Dwight and Elisa, so much for making the time to meet with us here on TBA21's podcast series for Becoming Salty Drops of Water. I'd like to thank TBA21, Ocean Networks Canada, the SFB 1258 at the Technical University of Munich. Killian Holtzapel for all of his ongoing technical wizardry with the um, telescope and the sound platform, and of course, all of the artists that have been involved. You, um, as a listener, can gain intimacy without proximity by visiting the website at radioanion.net, where you can hear the sounds transmitted to the Pacific during each full moon. And there you can sign up to our newsletter to get recurring information on the new compositions and artists involved. In the coming year, we'll have more astonishing sounds linking and collapsing boundaries between realities. And you can also follow us on Instagram at radio underscore amnion underscore. So thanks so much.
0: Magical, Fresh, and Salty Conversations is produced by TBA21 Academy with the support of Starts, an initiative by the European Commission. Special thanks to our hosts and guests, Dwight Owens, Elisa Rasconi, and Joel Toms. Editor-at-Large, Maria Montero Sierra. Editing and sound design... Elena Caesar. Voiceover Nathan Johnson. Music by Horizon Sound and underwater sound recordings of the Venetian Lagoon by Sonia Levy and Jez Riley French. Produced by Miriam Calabresa, Maria Montero Sierra, Katerina Rakuschek, and the artists. Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org or subscribe with your podcast provider.